The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM.
afternoon, you are tuned to Topica here on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is me, Simon Tishko, and I'm broadcasting from London Aeroplane Wing here in southwest London. Winter's arrived, kind of nice, makes a change from our Indian summer. What have we just been listening to? We've been listening to a very autumnal piece of contemporary music concrete from John Weiss on... Pan Records, I think it's Pan Records number 22, and, and an album called Seven of Ones. We just listened to Corpse Solo. Isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of nice? Yeah, I think so. Hope you enjoy. Now further on, in today's edition of Isotopia, we're going to go kind of a science route, a uh, kind of analogous science society as extraordinarily balanced, because we are balanced people here on Resonance 104.4 FM. And then now we just look at science, sociology, and politics. Probably a little bit of economics thrown in there too. But listening to some beautiful archive material from Welcome Institute, represented and recontextualized this kind of contemporary political poetry, should we call it. And today we're featuring overweight children and schistomasiasis, which is one of those kind of out there waterborne diseases, which is just so beautiful in this scientific archival description of its life cycle. It's just one of those things that kind of makes me shudder. I hope you enjoy. Also, vaguely mentioning and letting you know about a project and the very 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 soft launch of illogistics.org which is a problem a problem or a project a, problem, a problematic project perhaps in collaboration with Elo Massing from Resonance FM Sound Hub Estonian contemporary composer and all-round creative person hence illogistics.org something we've been working on for a while that's a website you can have a look at it's really disrespectful, it's not at all nice, and it's probably quite insulting in places, but I think we know what we're doing, we're trying to stay on our bicycles. Pin back your ears for another isotopia. Details of today's episode, future episodes, past episodes, etc., etc., can be found on my main website, being www.theculture.net. Go and that there, contact us through that, and hope you enjoy today's episode. Pin back your ears and just see where isotopia takes you. in blue, Ronnie Brown, aged ten and a half, nearly nine stone. On the left, in brown with the ball, Jimmy Grant, same age, much the same weight. In front, Valerie Smith, age eleven, seven stone twelve.
Christmas begins at home. Mrs. Brown, well-meaning and the soul of kindness, has made what she'd call a good filling meal for her family. It's filling, but is it good for them? Oh! Go on, take it. All right, Mum. Have another cup of Dad, you're fagged out. I am. Mr. Brown, also very much overweight, works at a desk, takes no exercise. Poor expectation of life. Thanks, Doc. How about yourself? I'll just fill up the pot. With his sweet tooth, pity he hasn't heard of things like saccharin. Even walking makes her puff, and he's breathless all the time. You naughty little girl. Never mind. No, Mummy didn't mean it. Kiss her better. Yes. You have a nice sweetie. Like that? All right now? If only Mrs. Brown knew more about food. There are three main kinds of food. Protein, carbohydrate, and fat. You need the right amount of all three for good health. Protein for growth and to replace worn out tissues. Carbohydrate for energy. Fat for warmth, and it's a further source of energy. You need also small quantities of those vitamins we hear so much about today. But you can get all you need from any well-balanced meal, which includes fresh fruit and vegetables. Mrs. Brown thinks that fatness runs in families and can't be helped. As a matter of fact, there is some truth in this, as it's been found that with one fat parent, half the children tend to be overweight. And with both parents fat, nearly all the children are. There's all the more reason for Mrs. Brown not to make things worse by stuffing her family with a stodgy meal like this. The trouble often starts as a baby. And food is our joy and mother's arms are refuge. So we identify eating with pleasure and security to our cost later on. Most mothers want to do all they can for their babies. And a weekly gain in weight seems proof of success. Though a plump one doesn't thrive any better than a lean one. A nervy mother may try to show affection through food. She may try to force it to show her love. Some mothers add an extra spoonful or two of sugar, just to make sure. But it's horribly easy to give too much carbohydrate in the feed. Lollies are often used to keep babies quiet. Mothers in a hurry may cut down babies' exercise. 
and trouble starts. Poor lonely Valerie comes from a broken home. She has dragged behind the others slowly back from school because she's never really happy in the house with her mother. She dearly loved her vain, handsome father. When he left home for good, she began eating chocolate to console herself. Now she can hardly leave the stuff alone. Your tea's waiting, Valerie. And mind you wash up, I'm going out. Are you home, Mum? I don't know. Look at you, growing out of your clothes again. Oh, for Pete's sake, stop eating chocolate. Without help, she'll be handicapped for life. Like other fat girls, she'll have to buy outsized dresses. She'll be left on her own at dances. She'll be too embarrassed to undress at the swimming pool. And will grow into a fat, breathless woman like Mrs. Brown. All this should have been tackled earlier. Jimmy Grant is young enough. He enjoys the food his mother gives him, but she's fat as well, though Mr. Grant and the younger boy are slim. Tom, eat it up. Thanks. If you don't eat, you'll never grow big and strong like our Jimmy. Go along, eat it up. Wasting good food. Oh, sorry, Mum, I forgot. What's that then? The school doctor says Jim is putting on too much weight and I'm to take him to be examined. He's just well built, that's all. Ah, uh, they're right, love. He is fat. They've made an appointment for us. I haven't the time. The doctor said so, love, so you better go. As you may have guessed, Jimmy became one of my patients. I noted his height and took his weight. Then, with calipers, I measured the layer of fat under his skin. I found he was fully 30% overweight, much too heavy. There's nothing wrong, is there, Doctor? He's much too fat, and he'll damage his health if he gets any fatter. Could it be his glands? Making him fat? Yes. No, that's hardly ever the cause, and it certainly isn't in this case. He's a perfectly normal boy. But you know, he eats too much for his particular needs. He'll have to have a diet. Isn't it just puppy fat, Doctor? No, that's not it. <laughs> what is it, then? Unless your boy stops overeating and takes more exercise, he'll grow into a fat man who carries a lot of extra weight around with him wherever he goes. That puts a strain on his heart and lungs. He may not live as long as he should. Couldn't you give him tablets, Doctor? Their effects would only be temporary. No, it'll have to be a diet, I'm afraid. My husband eats everything I give him. How can he keep so slim? I wish I could. He must be one of the lucky ones whose appetite and energy are naturally balanced. Food which isn't used for energy or growth is turned into body fat and banked on the chest, tummy or thighs. It's much easier for you to see that your child doesn't get fat than for him to get slim when he's grown up. 
It sounds simple, but really it's quite difficult. You'll all have to help Jimmy as much as you can. What are calories, Doctor? They're units of energy in food terms. The body's fuel. Now, the right way to cut them down is by reducing the amount he eats, particularly the starches and sugars, the carbohydrate in his food. You see, he needs the protein for growth. And no snacks or ice lollies or chips in between meals. Are you, Jimmy? Yes, Doctor. I know that dieting at home is difficult. But if it doesn't work, we have to take the patient into hospital for treatment. Do your best for Jimmy's sake. You can give him meat, fish, eggs, vegetables, lettuce. They do you all good. I gave Mrs. Grant the detailed diet sheet and told her that I'd see Jimmy in three weeks' time. But meanwhile, she was to get him weighed each week. And it would be no bad thing for her to do the same. She said she wished she'd known about these things years ago. Sometimes you can get children competing to lose weight. So I was particularly pleased when Ronnie Brown, munching crisps as usual, passed Jimmy on his way in to see me. The others went happily home, where Mrs. Grant started Jimmy off on his diet right away. She stopped him taking too much sugar and gave everyone some fish, green stuff and fresh fruit. I wish all parents were as cooperative. All too often they won't try. Mrs. Brown even attempted to discourage Mrs. Grant when she invited her to tea. I couldn't be bothered, dear. I told the doctor straight. We are fat people. That's all there is to it. Dad and I like to see the children enjoying their food. In spite of Mrs. Brown, Mrs. Grant worked wonders with Jimmy. And three weeks later, he'd begun to lose weight and gain self-confidence. Well done, Jimmy. If you keep on like this, you'll be winning all the races at the next school sports. Go! To cure a fat child is not a simple matter. There are three people involved. There's the child, the doctor, and above all, there's you. Mrs. Grant helped. Mrs. Brown didn't. Make no mistake about it, it's overfeeding that makes a child fat. Prevention is relatively simple. It's a cruel kindness to let your children eat too much. Fatness begins at home. Fatness begins at home. Fatness begins at home. Fatness begins at home. Fatness begins at home.
With these few words, I make a mark that can never be eradicated. It doesn't matter that so few of you will hear them. What matters is that my voice will continue to travel across the vastness of space, even when I exist no more at least in this form. But may these words be a thing of beauty. May they fade as the glorious sun sets into a rippling blue sea, only slower, much slower. Let this be the movie where night never falls, but creeps in imperceptibly, never obscuring the view. Such is the permanence of beauty.
And I wonder if there's a place where all the sounds that were ever made join together. An empty place. An empty place at the edge of everywhere. Where every ripple, every cry, every shout, poets and warriors, cursing sailors, bugs and whales, screaming babies. The last gasp of a quiet man. Seismic shifts. Butterflies' wings. Someone left the radio on and the voice is breaking up. Fragments. Sandpaper. Static. A resonating chord. Say it. A big bang. A big bang that merely emphasizes what was already there.
happy children are playing in water that is more than likely to be infected by one of the world's most damaging parasitic diseases. Schistosomes are parasitic flukes that live in the bloodstream of man. They cause the disease schistosomiasis, probably better known as bilharzia, a major health problem for hundreds of millions of people in many tropical and subtropical regions of the world. A male schistosome is seen here with a female partly held in his gynecophoric canal. The male is about a centimeter long and uses the lateral folds of his body to form the gynecophoric canal with which he embraces the longer, more slender female. Incidentally, the scientific name schistosoma means cleft-bodied. This is the anterior part of the cleft which surrounds the head end of the female. Here are the paired schistosomes in the portal vein of an experimentally infected hamster. The flukes migrate as far as they can into the mesenteric veins and the female extends out of the gynecophoric canal to deposit her eggs into the smaller blood vessels. The eggs then work through the tissues into the lumen of the intestine. The earliest records of urinary schistosomiasis are to be found in the Ebers papyrus, dated around 1900 BC. Although the ancient Egyptians did not know the cause of the disease, they recognized and clearly illustrated the urinary symptoms in their hieroglyphics. Calcified schistosome eggs have also been identified in the kidneys of mummies more than 3,000 years old. It was not until 1851 that the German pathologist Theodor Bilharz identified Schistosoma hematobium as the causative agent of urinary schistosomiasis in Egypt. In 1904, Katsurada described the life cycle of Japonicum. And in 1907, Sambon described Mansoni as a separate species. In 1934, Fischer recorded the existence of intercalatum. And as recently as 1978, Vogue, Bruckner and Bruce discovered Mekongai. Today, 18 species are recognized. Of these, Mansoni, Japonicum and Hematobium probably infect more people worldwide than any of the other species. Mansoni lives chiefly in the veins of the large intestine. And this part of the portal circulation is also infected by Japonicum. Schistosoma hematobium differs from the other two species. It inhabits the blood vessels of the bladder and its eggs are discharged with the urine. The main clinical sign is hematuria, but ultimately fibrotic lesions may develop throughout the whole of the urogenital system. Bladder cancer is not an uncommon development in advanced stages of the disease. Schistosomiasis is currently endemic in 75 countries. Hematobium is present in 53 countries, mostly in Africa, but also in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mansoni shows a similar distribution, except that it's also found in South America, notably Brazil, where it was probably carried with the slave trade. Japonicum, on the other hand, is confined to countries of the Far East, China, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Japan, where the parasite was originally found, has now been freed from the disease. Mekongai occurs in Southeast Asia. And intercalatum is found in Central and West Africa. 
Worldwide, some 200 million people are infected with the schistosomes and 500 to 600 million are at risk. The highest infection rates are found in Brazil, Egypt and the Sudan. Freshwater snails play an essential role in the transmission of the disease, since each schistosome will spend part of its life cycle in the tissues of a snail. Species of Bulinus are intermediate hosts for Haematobium. Biomphalaria carries Mansoni, and Oncomelania carries Japonicum. Wholesale destruction of the snail hosts with chemical molluscicides is one obvious method of reducing the incidence of schistosomiasis. But since the snails are hermaphrodite, possessing both male and female sexual organs, it needs only one individual to survive a control program of this kind for an entire area to be repopulated within a single season. Moreover, development projects such as hydroelectric schemes like the gigantic Kariba Dam on the Zambezi have created large bodies of water and consequently enabled the snails to flourish in recent years. Although most infected people carry only small numbers of schistosomes, treatment with an effective drug not only reduces the prevalence of the disease, it also reduces morbidity. Praziquantel is currently the drug of choice, since a single dose affects all the main species of schistosome that infect man, and it produces high cure rates. Oxamniquin is also used for mansoni, especially in South America, while metrifonate is valuable for the treatment of hematobium. It's man's primitive habits with regard to urination and defecation which maintain the disease in the community. Obviously, the separation of urine and feces from waters inhabited by the snails is vital in the control of infection. In the third world, this is easier said than done. However, in Zimbabwe, the Blair Research Laboratories have produced some interesting designs for simple water pumps and lavatories. This one is a strong shelter built over a deep pit. It has an odour pipe, fly traps, and is easy to keep clean. And here are some variations on the basic design. The Blair water pumps are ingenious. This one uses the pipe that delivers the water as the pump handle. In the playground of a village school, these girls are enjoying their swing pump. Official notices, pamphlets and posters are also used in an attempt to increase local awareness in endemic areas. The most desirable control measure would undoubtedly be a one-shot vaccine, and it's towards this goal that current research is mainly directed. All species of human schistosomes have essentially the same life cycle. We've chosen Mansoni for discussion here, as it's the easiest to maintain and investigate under laboratory conditions. The flukes live paired in the hepatic portal and mesenteric veins. The male is light in colour, with a dark central line, the gut, just visible. The female, partly held in his gynecophoric canal, appears very dark in comparison, because her gut is more obvious. The dark colour is hematin, 
a product of haemoglobin digestion, derived from red cells of the host's blood, which fills the double zigzag line of the gut. If you look closely, you'll see individual blood cells moving through the narrower passages. This female has an egg in her uterus. Above the egg is the spiraled vitiline duct. The female is cylindrical and has a relatively smooth surface. But the dorsal surface of the male bears many spiny bosses or tubercles that are thought to anchor him in position by catching against the walls of the blood vessels. There are numerous pits between the tubercles which presumably serve to increase the absorptive surface area. While sensory organelles are abundantly distributed over the entire body, these ensure that the schistosome is aware of minute changes in its microenvironment. Each fluke has two suckers at the anterior end of its body. The ventral sucker is used by the fluke to attach itself to the walls of the blood vessels. The very spiny surface of the sucker ensures a firm grip. The oral sucker is important for feeding and is used to ingest the red blood cells of the host. The orifice is spiny and its outer margin is well endowed with sense organs. In this electron micrograph, we can see two blood cells inside the oral sucker. Here, the well-anchored pair seem to be traversed by continuous peristaltic waves, which are probably associated with the rate of blood flow. Fatness begins at home. Female schistosomes produce many hundreds of eggs a day, and these are deposited into a venule of the intestinal wall, where they become tightly lodged. The egg shell is covered with hundreds of needle-like spines which abrade the tissue and enable the eggs to work their way across the bowel wall and through the villi. Here are two eggs in tissue at the bases of the intestinal villi. They're making their way towards and into the lumen of the gut. Later, they'll pass out of the body with the feces. Some eggs are inevitably swept back past the flukes and carried in the portal blood to the liver, where they eventually provoke an immune reaction and become encapsulated in a granuloma. These granulomas are clearly visible as white spots on the liver of an infected mouse. An egg is at the center of this mass of infiltrating leukocytes, mainly mononuclear cells and eosinophils. These cells ultimately destroy many eggs. They've already started to invade the shell of this one. In severe chronic infections, the liver becomes filled with granulomas, and this leads to portal obstruction, hypertension, ascites, and massive enlargement of the liver and spleen. Compare the size of the organs in a normal mouse and a mouse harboring a chronic schistosome infection. These features of pathology accurately mimic the clinical symptoms of the human disease. Schistosome eggs are easily detected in faecal smears. They're about a seventh of a millimeter long 
and are comparatively large as helminth eggs go. The prominent lateral spine is the characteristic feature of Schistosoma mansoni. The spine is terminal in hematobium. And although lateral in japonicum, the spine is very small. The japonicum egg is much rounder and is therefore easily distinguished from the oval-shaped egg of mansoni. When passed in the faeces, each egg contains a fully formed myricidium, whose surface is covered with hundreds of cilia. The myricidium also possesses two pairs of flame cells, which can be recognized by their flickering movement. They form part of the simple excretory system, and their activity shows that the organism is alive. In fresh water, the egg expands by osmosis and as its contents become diluted, the myricidium is stimulated into activity. The movements of its surface cilia set up currents in the liquid, which appears to bubble. Suddenly, the shell is fractured, and the myricidium half emerges together with fluid from the egg. But the myricidium is still contained within the vitelline membrane, which surrounded it in the egg, and it has to struggle hard for a time before it finally manages to free itself. Fatness begins at home. Then, in a moment, it's on its way in search of a particular species of snail. The myricidia are propelled by vibrating the thousands of minute, hair-like cilia covering their elongated bodies. This is a critical period for them. They must find their particular species of snail within a few hours, or they'll die. The snail shown here is Biomphalaria glabrata from South America. The myricidia adhere to its exposed surfaces. They burrow their way in by a combination of enzymic digestion and mechanical movement. It takes about an hour for a myricidium to penetrate completely. Once this is accomplished, the myricidium transforms to a primary sporocyst, which migrates towards the liver of the snail and begins a process of asexual multiplication. In this way, many secondary or daughter sporocysts develop independently and grow into long, thin bodies that eventually become convoluted. They give rise to cercarii that bud off in continuous sequence. Finally, the liver tissue of the snail is almost completely replaced by sporocysts and free cercarii. This is a secondary sporocyst which has been dissected out of the liver of an infected snail. It contains mature cercarii which are struggling to get out. They have developed in the sporocyst with their tails folded back along their bodies. This one is struggling very vigorously to free itself. Remember, we are watching cercarii with space around them. If they were still inside the snail, they would be tightly packed and their movements greatly restricted. At about four weeks after infection, the first cercarii emerge from the snail 
and they're soon escaping daily in swarms. They're about half a millimeter long and are actively swimming organisms that travel through the water with characteristic movements, usually tail first. Their life is short, about 48 hours at most, for they have no functional gut and their rapidly expended energy reserves cannot be replaced. The Sicaria has an elongated body region and a long forked tail. It also has an oral and a ventral sucker by which it adheres to any substrate. The external surface of the Sicaria is covered with spines that are backwardly directed. These help it to penetrate the skin of its next host since they ensure that the organism can only travel in a forward direction. Each Sicaria has a secretory complex comprising three types of unicellular glands which open through the oral sucker. This electron micrograph shows the folded gland openings. The glands contain powerful proteolytic enzymes which help the Sicaria to digest its way through the skin of the host. Here, Sicarii are penetrating the tail skin of a mouse. They attach with their suckers, digest, and wriggle their way through the skin. Once the body is inside, the tail drops off but remains active. The parasite, now called the schistosomulum, is safely within its new host. The sequence is now repeated in diagram. A saccaria attaches and makes a hole in the epidermis. It deepens the aperture and enters it by elongating its body. Shedding its tail, it migrates through the dermis and fat layer where it turns, seeking a blood vessel. On finding one, it enters and starts its journey round the body of the host. It's carried in the bloodstream, first to the lungs. By this time, it's become longer and considerably more slender, and lost its mid-body spines, although spines are retained at both ends. The spines, together with rhythmic activity, enable it to migrate along the tiny lung capillaries, which are often smaller in diameter than the larva itself. The flukes leave the lungs through the pulmonary veins and pass by the left side of the heart to the liver. The earliest migrants arrive in the liver six to eight days after infection. They become short and squat, begin to feed, and their intestines fill with dark hematin pigment. Two to three week old juvenile flukes are now more recognizable as schistosomes but they have a convoluted system of folds and ridges on the surface. By week four, however, these folds are less conspicuous and dome-shaped elevations appear on the dorsal surface of males. They clearly represent early stages in the development of surface tubercles. Male and female flukes pair at around week five, 
Twice Topica here on Resonance 104.4 FM. One of the other tracks that you heard earlier on today was something called Are You Receiving Us Planet Earth, which is a 2014 recording by an English a musician called Edward Caspel and Philippe Petit in France. It's one of those bizarre artistic collaborations that if you're lucky you stumble across and I thought it was worth whizzing by your ears. Details of that will be available and are available on my website. Follow the links there on www.theculture.net You have been listening to Isotopica. You've been listening to a welcome, very welcome science edition of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed presenting and See, same time, same place, same wonderful resonance, 104.4 FM. This is me, this is Simon Tishko, signing off for another seven days. Thank you for tuning in. Stay locked to Resonance, the most wonderful art radio station in the world. Bye for now. This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.